With LinkedIn Jobs, we tap into a network of more than a billion professionals to help you find quality professionals quickly and easily for any role you need. Marketing wizards? Found them. Software engineers? Found. That project manager I could never seem to hire? And found. LinkedIn Jobs quickly matches your roles with candidates with the right skills and experience. In fact, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Post your first job for free and get started at linkedin.com slash acquire. That's linkedin.com slash acquire. Terms and conditions apply. Welcome to Money for the Rest of Us. This is a personal finance show on money, how it works, how to invest it, and how to live without worrying about it. I'm your host, David Stein. Today's episode 311. It's titled, Did ETFs pass the 2020 market collapse stress test? Last week, Lapril, my daughter, and I were in Red Lodge, Montana. We had been camping, and we wanted to order some takeout food. We found an Italian restaurant. I called to order our meal, and the individual that answered asked if he could put me on hold. I said, sure. Seven minutes later, I was still on hold. There was no hold music. He had put the phone down. And I could hear people in the background talking. I finally got so frustrated, I drove to the restaurant, still on hold, and walked in and said, hey, I'm the guy on hold. He was somewhat apologetic, said he had been delivering some food. The restaurant was empty. Maybe there were seats out back. So I tried to place my order. I wanted to order some pizza. He said, we don't have any pizza today. We're not making it. The last time I was in a pizza restaurant that didn't have pizza was in Cuba, and they actually told me why. They said they had no cheese. I tried to order the vegetarian lasagna. We're not doing vegetarian lasagna today, he said. At that point, I gave up and left. It's important that businesses and financial instruments be tested and be given feedback when their processes aren't working well. Sometimes it's called a stress test. Now, in the case of this restaurant, I thought, since I was on hold so long, that they were under stress, so it would be helpful to provide feedback. No, the restaurant was empty. This year, we have definitely had some stressed financial markets, and there were predictions that some financial instruments would not perform well in a stressful environment when there are many sellers trying to exit. Michael Burry is a hedge fund manager that was featured in the movie and book The Big Short. He predicted the subprime crisis of 2008. Last September 2019, in an interview with Bloomberg, he said central banks and Basel III, which is the banking regulation that we talked about a few episodes ago on our bank safe, have more or less removed price discovery from the credit markets, meaning risk does not have an accurate pricing mechanism in interest rates anymore. And now passive investing has removed price discovery from the equity markets. I discussed this in Plus Episode 268, and a member wrote me that did a great job describing what Burry's concern is. He wrote, Burry thinks that the low-volume stocks within an index are relatively illiquid. When an index ETF wants to create new ETF shares, it has to bid up the price of a low-volume stock in order to create the ETF shares. That is, the index fund is artificially supporting the price of the low-volume stock. The reverse is true when an index fund or ETF eliminates its shares. It must sell the low-volume share into an illiquid market. It must receive relatively less for the share if they are obliged to sell. Burry points out that index funds are forcing capital into a segment of the market that cannot really absorb it, and thus the prices are disconnected from the true value of the stock. 
That was Burry's concern. He was not alone. Paul Singer, founder of Elliott Management, a hedge fund, said passive investing is in danger of devouring capitalism. What may have been a clever idea in its infancy has grown into a blob which is destructive to the growth-creating and consensus-building prospects of free market capitalism. Capitalism being the process of allocating capital efficiently. Anigo Fraser Jenkins, a senior analyst at the research firm Bernstein, in a 2016 client note said, passive investing was worse than Marxism because communists at least tried to allocate capital efficiently. There is, was this debate that there is a bubble in indexing and ETFs. In many securities, their prices are inflated because there are indiscriminate buyers, passive investors going into ETFs and index funds that are pushing up those prices. It's not fundamental analysis. On the other side of the argument, you have individuals like Jim Rowley, who's a senior investment strategist at Vanguard. He says, I'd say consumers choosing a better product at a cheaper price is the very essence of capitalism. There's a paper issued by the Federal Reserve Bank of Boston titled The Shift from Active to Passive Investing, Potential Risk to Financial Stability. They write, to the extent that passive investing is pushing up the prices of index constituents, two types of potential repercussions for financial stability might arise. First, in theory, rising prices can lead to more index investing and the resulting index bubble eventually could burst. But they point out that this bubble might not be the entire market, but could be just elements of the market, some stocks getting pushed up, while others might have their prices fall because they're not necessarily included in the index. Or investors were selling active mutual funds and going in to index funds, so the overall market valuation wasn't necessarily going higher. They also point out that some stocks will, because they are part of that basket that an ETF holds, might be more liquid, whereas other names are going to be less liquid. So you have different things going on that makes it challenging to figure out whether there is or was an indexing bubble. What we needed is a stress test. We needed people rushing to get out of ETFs and other assets and to see how they hold up. One of the concerns regarding ETFs is there would be a flash crash, which has occurred in the past where the price of an ETF has fallen dramatically more so than the price of its underlying holdings. And this can occur when there are trading halts in either the ETF or the underlying holdings. These trading halts are circuit breakers that are implemented if the price of a security or ETF falls below some threshold. And they're there to suppress volatility, to allow traders time to catch their breaths or trading systems time to recalibrate, to time out. The stress test is very, very important because ETFs are so much bigger than they were. $6 trillion in assets in the ETF sector. That's up sevenfold from 2007. So what happened during late February and March as markets sold off dramatically? Well, first, there was no flash crash. Trading volume definitely spiked. iShares shared some data for the week of February 24th, 2020, Volatility spiked. So the VIX, the CBOE Volatility Index, it reached 49, the highest since February 2018. And the S&P 500 had its largest weekly decline since the 2008 global financial crisis. Exchange-traded products that week comprise 38% of market trading, 
whereas back in 2019, they accounted on average for 27%. So there was much more trading in ETFs. Exchange-traded products, which include ETFs and ETNs, traded a record $1.4 trillion of volume from February 24th through February 28th. It's 170% greater than its average daily trading volume from the prior month. And then that trading was fairly efficient. So the bid-ask spread, what in investors were buying the ETF for or selling the ETF for, that price difference, was generally in line with historical averages. In addition, most of the trading volume was trading in the secondary market, investors trading the ETFs with each other rather than trading facilitated by authorized participants who interact directly with the ETF sponsored in creating and redeeming shares. The volume of secondary market trading in exchange-traded products was 14 to 1 relative to primary activity of this trading with authorized participants. What that means is, is that ETFs in some ways acted as a shock absorber. When investors were trying to get out, even if the underlying securities might have been less liquid by selling ETFs, taking much of that trading volume, that put less pressure on perhaps some of those less liquid securities. It seemed to function. If we look at what happened during these, this market 2020 turmoil compared to the flash crash of 2010, volatility was actually much higher during the March 2020 turmoil. The minimum and maximum levels during a given day for the various indices was higher during March 2020 than back in the flash crash of 2010. And yet the market seemed to function, generally speaking, at least for equity ETFs. Even Michael Burry in March 2020, seemed to admit this. He told Bloomberg, I have a significant bearish market bet that is working out for now. A global pandemic is absolutely a potential trigger for the unwinding of the passive investing bubble. But despite that volatility, Burry said he hadn't noticed any signs of dysfunction in the markets that was making it harder for him to trade or exploit investment opportunities. Equity ETF seems to have passed that stress test. It worked, even though the volume of trading was so much higher, the number of ETFs was so much higher. There were some challenges on the bond side. The Vanguard Total Bond Market ETF, BND, on March 12th, its closing price was 6.2% less than its net asset value per share. The price was less than the supposed value of the underlying holdings on a per share basis. During the prior 13 years, that ETF had a 0.17% premium of the closing price to NAV. Now we're at a 6.2% discount. Rich Powers, who's head of ETF product management at Vanguard, said this wasn't unusual. Market prices for ETFs can move more rapidly than the net asset value. That is part of the price discovery process. He's saying that's normal. That's a big gap, 6%. Stephen Zamsky, he's an executive at Smith Capital and the former head of U.S. credit trading at Morgan Stanley, said ETF vehicles held up well until about 10 days ago. But then the NAV gap started opening up and they've been persistent ever since. It shows the challenges that are out there. Liquidity has been really, really rough. And subsequently, there's a lot of pressure in ETF land. Ben Johnson, the director of passive funds at Morningstar, said market makers are having to be extremely cautious in pricing risk in these challenging conditions. 
No one really has any clear idea about the pricing of some of the bonds held by these ETFs. What was going on with bond ETFs? Was this normal? Before we continue, let me pause and share some words from this week's sponsors. Sometimes it's just nice to sit back, relax, maybe even take a nap. That's not what you want your money to be doing. You want it to be working hard for you, earning interest, generating returns. That's where the Betterment Automated Investing and Savings app can help. Betterment's technology gives you advanced tools that are built to help you maximize returns. They have diversified portfolios of low-cost ETFs that have been constructed by experts. High-yield cash accounts, where your money can earn 11 times the national average. And automated investing technology, like automated rebalancing. These tools can help you reach your savings and investing goals. Betterment is a fiduciary. That means it's their job to act in your best interest. They will never recommend an investment or give you guidance unless they believe it will help you reach your financial goals. So visit Betterment.com to get started. Learn more about the high-yield cash accounts at Betterment.com. Investing involves risk, performance not guaranteed, cash reserves offered through Betterment LLC and Betterment Securities. Betterment is not a bank. Your business was humming, but now you're falling behind. Teams buried in manual work, taking forever to close the books. If this is you, you should know these three numbers. 37,000, 25, 1. 37,000, that's the number of businesses which have upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, streamlining accounting, financial management, inventory, HR, and more. 25, NetSuite turns 25 this year. That's 25 years of helping businesses do more with less, close their books in days, not weeks, and drive down cost. One, because your business is one of a kind, so you can get a customized solution for all your KPIs in one efficient system with one source of truth. Manage risk, get reliable forecasts, and improve margins. Everything you need to grow all in one place. I know in our business, we've seen having the key information is critical to making better decisions. And NetSuite can help make that possible for you. Right now, download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist designed to give you consistently excellent performance, absolutely free, at netsuite.com david. That's netsuite.com david to get your own KPI checklist. netsuite.com david. Well, it turns out that the authorized participants that step in when the price of an ETF falls below the net asset value, when there's too big of a discount or too much of a premium, they step in and try to narrow that through their trading activity. They were unwilling to do so. Typically, their incentives to do so is they can earn an arbitrage profit. But in this case, the uncertainty as to the true value of the bonds was unknown, and they were unwiling to do that. Now, those that say ETFs were functioning properly say, no, the ETFs were the price discovery mechanism. They were accurately pricing the bonds. It's just that the actual price of the bonds hadn't yet been reflected into what was being priced into the ETFs. Bonds typically have sold not on an exchange, but through dealer networks with not a lot of transparency. One of the positive developments from so much money going into bond ETFs is there actually is more electronic bond trading. For example, two leading electronic bond trading platforms, Market Access and TradeWeb, they account for 34% of all higher-rated investment-grade corporate bond trades. 
And the other thing that's happening with corporate bond trades is because of the bond ETF structure, there are firms out there that will trade hundreds of bonds, thousands of bonds in a single trade. Jane Street is an example of this type of firm. They can trade from 10 to 1,000 different bonds worth up to a billion dollars. And they did $66 billion of credit portfolio trades, not just trading one bond, but trading multiple bonds in a bundle, which facilitates trading in ETFs because a bond ETF, as they work with authorized participants, they have a reference basket, a basket of bonds that they're willing to exchange for shares of the ETFs. Because there's more electronic bond trading activity, it's easier to price a bond portfolio. Dan Viner, Global Head of Fixed Income Trading at BlackRock, said two years ago, pricing 800 bonds would be an all-hands-on-deck, all-day exercise. Now it can be done in minutes. So it's hard to say whether these big discounts between the price of a bond ETF and its net asset value, if that was failing the stress test or that was normal activity. It got resolved because the Federal Reserve announced that they would be buying many, many more bonds, including corporate bonds. And then suddenly these discounts shrunk. And in many cases, for investment-grade corporate bonds, we went to a premium. I got caught in this because I had put options on the Invesco Senior Loan ETF. This was an exchange-traded fund that invests in bank loans. I felt like there would be some stress in the bank loan market because it is inherently illiquid. When a bear market came, I felt like the ETF would sell off significantly. And it did. And my puts were worth five times more than what I paid. But I thought things would get worse. And they didn't. And then the Federal Reserve made their announcement and bank loans rose in price. I exited. I made a slight profit, but certainly not five times what I paid for. The Federal Reserve did the right thing in stepping in. They calmed the markets. And so I think equity ETFs passed their stress tests. Bond ETFs, there's some controversy whether they did or not. There are types of ETFs that flat out failed. Leveraged ETFs that use debt or derivatives to deliver two to three times the underlying performance of the target index. Because the sell-off was so severe and so fast, they essentially lost most of their money and had to close down. JP Morgan estimates that 44 leveraged ETFs closed. Credit Suisse alone has shut down nine leveraged ETFs. ETFs tied to oil, such as US oil, USO, failed the stress test. We discussed this back in episode 296 on negative pricing. Even with the rebound in oil prices, that ETF is still down 73%. And the flaw there was the structure of the ETF. It was buying the front month of the West Texas Intermediate Crude Future Contract. And when that contract was near to expiration, it would have to exit it and buy the next contract. The problem is, No one wanted to buy the contract because there was a glut of oil and not enough places to store it. And the demand to exit the contract was so great because USO couldn't take delivery of the oil that it pushed the oil price down to negative $37 a barrel. But it was the dominance of that ETF in the short-term future markets 
that helped drive that negative oil price. Since then, USO has entered into future contracts, not just the front month, but later month contracts. But that was a failure. Hopefully you didn't own it. That then is our overview of how ETFs have done on their recent stress test. Some passed, like equity ETFs, bond ETFs, the jury is still out. But one investment security that's supposed to be extremely liquid had significant stress during that same March period. U.S. Treasury securities. It was very difficult to execute modestly sized transactions. Transaction cost soared. The price of derivatives, treasury futures, became disconnected from the actual price of treasuries. There was a big price gap between on-the-run treasuries, those that were most recently issued, and off-the-run treasuries, those that have been outstanding for a while. They effectively should be very close in price because it's the same security. It's the U.S. government backing it. But the spread widened. What was going on? Well, there's a great deal of deleveraging occurring. Treasuries, as we've discussed in other episodes, are used as collateral in repurchase agreements. Repurchase agreement is where an entity borrows money, typically on a short-term basis, and puts up collateral, U.S. Treasuries, as security. Repos are a form of leverage, and when entities wanted to unwind that leverage, there was a flood of treasuries. There was a great deal of treasury trading, and there was a high degree of uncertainty, and the market just wasn't functioning appropriately. Typically, banks and other dealers would step in if there's this type of dislocation, but because of some of the Basel III regulations that we discussed on the episode Are Banks Safe?, they were less willing to participate. Now, the problem was solved when the Federal Reserve stepped in and expanded their repo operations, agreed to buy treasuries as part of quantitative easing, and eased some of the regulations temporarily. Here's a security, U.S. Treasuries, that were under stress in this environment, and that showed up in pricing. This was an extreme event. The way the pandemic hit and the uncertainty just soared and people wanted to get out, it's positive that the carnage wasn't even worse, and that some of these investment vehicles, like ETFs, held up so well. ETFs have risk, like flash crashes, but it didn't occur. I prefer ETFs over index mutual funds because typically the fees are lower, because the operating cost for a sponsor to an ETF is lower than it is for an index fund. There's less cost for client servicing, for example. And so typically expense ratio is lower and the taxes are lower. The share creation and redemption process that ETFs go through lead to lower overall taxes for shareholders because low cost basis securities, those that if sold would create a taxable event that is passed on to shareholders, those securities can be passed on to authorized participants and then the authorized participant sells them. But the shareholders of the ETF don't have a taxable event. That leads to ETFs being more tax efficient. Now, ETFs are great if you want to trade daily, but for long-term holders, they can be very effective holdings because of the lower fees and because of the lower tax burden if we don't have issues like flash crashes and other liquidity events that offset some of those benefits. And as we saw in March 2020, generally, things did okay. 
Ben Johnson, head of ETF research at Morningstar, said anytime you see ETFs go through stressed markets, you get to see where the stretched seams are and where they might burst. And we definitely saw that in 2020. I will continue to invest in ETFs. Whenever I trade, I do a limit order. So I specify what price I'm willing to buy or sell the ETF at. I don't do a market order where I just take whatever price is out there because that price might not be what I expect it to be. So always use limit orders when you trade ETFs. That then is episode 311. You can get show notes, links to the articles that I used in preparing this episode at moneyfortherestofus.com. While you're there, please sign up for my free weekly insider's guide. This is an email newsletter I send out just to individuals on that list with those show notes, as well as an essay on money, investing, and the economy. And you can sign up for that at moneyfortherestofus.com. Everything I've shared with you in this episode has been for general education. I'm not considered your specific risk situation. I've not provided investment advice. This is simply general education on money, investing, and the economy. Have a great week.